Uh, it's not related directly to my uh, global professorship project, but it's, it is related to my long-term involvement in human rights law practice, primarily at the United Nations level, but also to some extent at uh, other fora. And as was mentioned, uh, indigenous people's rights is an area where I've been involved over roughly three decades, uh, also at the practical level. As an academic, my main contribution in the field of human rights and climate change is that I'm the proud PhD supervisor of Margareta Weverinki, who hopefully is today with us. Uh, she has written a very strong book on the theme. I claim here to propose a new line of argument uh, for climate change litigation insofar as it uh, relates to human rights law. And I start by identifying two problems with so far efforts to rely on human rights law in climate change litigation. Firstly, there's an issue of potential instrumentalization of human rights uh, of individuals through human rights law to some external aim or objective. Uh, what I see is that uh, people who take to human rights courts or other human rights fora in issues of climate change, they primarily seek to have an outcome which would directly address climate change instead of an outcome which would address the human rights of the clients. And I see potential problems with that strategy. I cut the line short here, a questionable strategy, in order not to say whether I see a problem with the ends or the means. Strategy is, of course, means towards a strategic objective. And what is the strategic objective should determine then what means are deployed. It can be either or, but, but the word instrumentalization uh, uh, suggests that, that I might see the problem in the strategic objective itself. This results in relative overemphasis on the remedy, often the purpose of utilizing uh, human rights fora for climate change litigation is to get a remedy pronouncement which orders the respondent state or whoever the respondent is to uh, adopt uh, emissions reduction target or simil similar clear uh, actionable measure for, for countering climate change. And conversely, there might be as a consequence underemphasis of the facts about the uh, impact of climate change that would amount to human rights violation. So I, I, I see that through these strategic choices, there's a risk that the basic issue of substantiating what is a human rights violation gets ignored when focus is too much on the outcome, pursued outcome of getting an order to take effective measures against climate change. Um, the problem as a consequence is, uh, that's the uh, category two problem, is that such a strategy uh, risk being frustrated by unnecessarily high thresholds 
that are procedural in nature, partly related to preliminary objections by states, partly related to the admissibility requirements under a particular human rights uh, treaty. We get states uh, invoking the notion of jurisdiction or resorting to state law of the state to the law of state responsibility by referring to attribution or causation, or we have the internal admissibility requirements of the human rights treaties themselves, of, for instance, victim status, exhaustion of domestic remedies. And, and, and specifically, the problem then boils down to the question, what kind of human rights impact can be documented and proven by now? so that it amounts to a human rights violation that has already taken place or is an ongoing human rights violation. So these are the two problems uh, which I hope to address in this presentation by presenting an alternative line of argument for litigating climate change issues before human rights bodies. Before that, I make a reference to the recent uh, communicated case of Duarte Agostinho and others versus Portugal and others. It's a case before the European Court of Human Rights, which has been communicated to 33 uh, member states of the European Convention on Human Rights. And the court has sent a list of interesting questions and uh, references to its own case law. And through these questions, we see uh, that the problems I referred to previously may be, become quite dominant in the consideration of the case by the European Court of Human Rights. These 33 member states uh, are requested to respond to these questions. And you see, for instance, references to the Bankovic case, etc., which give another occasion for member states to raise those preliminary objections and issues of admissibility. Uh, one must assume that the European Court of Human Rights is acting in good faith. They are interested in the case, they are interested in climate change and its human rights impact, but this may still be a good faith fishing expedition. This provides a unique opportunity for the European Court of Human Rights to gather the views widely of member states articulated in legal terms how can the European Convention on Human Rights be utilized in climate change litigation? It's not necessarily that they find much merit in this particular case, but they want to deal with the issue and perhaps map the terrain because they, for instance, get a wonderful comparative survey for the future cases through the material that they collect by, by hearing all three, 33 respondent states. Uh, question uh, two here in the list is primarily about, sorry, question one is primarily about jurisdiction and attribution. Question two is about the victim requirement. Question three is whether there is a violation and includes also reference to positive obligations. And from the perspective of uh, my presentation, it is question three, which I think is in substance the interesting one but, but uh, simply the way the European Court of Human Rights poses the question invites states under items one and two to raise a lot of questions that need to be addressed before getting to the potential merits of the case through question three. 
There's another pending case, which to me uh, gives a, has a more optimistic outlook. It's a case pending before the Human Rights Committee and has received some publicity. I don't think the Human Rights Committee has released any document. And uh, I have heard the case being referred to as Billy and others versus Australia. But I, I couldn't actually find any official document that utilizes that name of the case. Uh, from a list of pending cases, one finds a pending climate change case against, the Europe, against Australia in the repository of the Human Rights Committee. But let's look at the case of Billy. I call it Billy because that's the name I heard. There's a pre-submission press release by Client Earth, which is involved in uh, the litigation and presentation and advocacy around the case. The case asserts that fa by failing to take adequate action to reduce emissions or to take proper adaptation measures, Australia is failing its legal human rights obligations in relation to the Torres Strait people, one of the indigenous peoples in Australia. And the rights invoked are the right to culture, the right to a family and the right to life. In the reference to family also includes the rights uh, of a child. So we have the usual indigenous people's rights article, article 27, the right to enjoy culture, but with a cluster of rights that pertain to family issues, 17 is privacy and family, uh, 23 is uh, family in born detail, and 24 is, uh, is uh, children. And then there's a right to life uh, reference as well. We find a story about the case in The Guardian from February 2020, which I think uh, has, from what is in the public domain, the most interesting single line um, where one of the islands is referred to as a place to share with children and grandchildren who would ordinarily take over the nurturing of the site that experience was taken away because of climate change, because of the rising sea levels. And that's actually the essence of my presentation today. But here we have an articulation of how climate change has by now resulted in adverse impact upon the enjoyment of human rights to a degree which constitutes an actual human rights violation. And what I will uh, do here in this presentation is to elaborate this line, which of course is layman's language, uh, using, using ordinary words, that experience was taken away, in order to uh, present the position that the intergenerational dimension of the right to culture is part of the essen essential content of Article 27 of the ICCPR. And here we come to the issue why indigenous people's rights might be central in uh, litigating climate change. It is the uh, transmittal of their particular way of life and culture to future generations, which not only is at risk, but has already been impacted to a degree which constitutes a human rights violation. This is a high profile case, which is seen uh, from the fact that the former and present UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment, Professors Boyd and Knox, uh, 
uh, are involved as, as having submitted amicus briefs, or I think they submitted it together. Uh, if you want more material, my slide, which you have now been able to copy in the time I have spent on this one, has a reference to a video where there is an interview with one of the uh, signatories of the petition. Anyway, this is a pending case, and of course we do not know the outcome yet, but I think it is um, highly important for the point I'm trying to make today. So we get to Article 27 of the ICCPR. As you know, the wording uh, has the clause, persons belonging to ethnic minorities shall not be denied the right in community with the other members of the group to enjoy their own culture. The notions of denial and culture are central here, as well as the wording, which suggests a strong collective dimension of a conceptually individual right. It's a right of individuals to enjoy their culture in community with other members of the group. The community term in itself may include an intergenerational dimension, and the notion of culture uh, includes uh, passing the culture way of life to future generations. And uh, there is, of course, a lot of practice by the Human Rights Committee, but quite interestingly, neither the Committee's General Comment Number 23 on Article 27 or any of the case law explicitly has dealt with the right of indigenous or ethnic minorities to transmit their culture to future generations. And this would be a dual right of, of both the parents or grandparents seeking to transmit, and then the children or grandchildren who are recipients of that transmission. So we have a wide range of potential victims here if we include transmission in the notion of culture and the enjoyment of culture under the terms of Article 27. The closest we have to uh, making a substantive pronouncement under the idea of transmission is the An Angela Poma, Poma versus Peru case, which is one of the more recent uh, Human Rights Committee cases on indigenous people's rights. It is already 10 years old, but still there hasn't been so many after that. And uh, what the committee says there is Raising lamas is an essential element of the culture of the Aymara community since it is a form of subsistence and an ancestral tradition handed down from parent to child. It is that notion of handed down, which of course is a synonym for transmission. So here we have it. We have recognition of uh, transmission of culture as an essential element of the rights under Article 27. So the foundation is uh, in that case, uh, has recognized it being in that case. If we go through uh, uh, Article 27 through standard means of interpretation, we look at the ordinary meaning of the terms in the provision, and we could go, for instance, the dictionary references to culture, where passing uh, the culture way of life to future generations certainly is a dimension conceptual dimension of culture. In systematic interpretation, you look at Article 27 as a whole and see how it pairs religion with practice of religion, language with use of language, 
and then ethnicity with the notion of culture. And uh, the Human Rights Committee rightly has uh, identified indigenous peoples as one of the prime beneficiaries of the uh, right to enjoy one's culture. Outside the ICCPR materials, one can go back to the uh, 1980s work by the then subcommission of the Commission on Human Rights and Special Rapporteur Jose Martinez Cobo, who was the author of the still most authoritative definition of indigenous peoples. And here we have the word transmit as part of the conceptual definition of indigenous peoples in their aspiration to transmit uh, to future generations their own cultural patterns. In the interpretive material emanating from the Human Rights Committee, transmission hasn't been made more explicit than what we saw in the Poma Poma case. Handed down was the notion used. But if you actually reread the uh, case law, there are several where there could have been an elaboration of the intergenerational uh, dimension. Lubicon uh, on uh, Lake Band uh, was a community with several generations that there was, for instance, a suicide issue among the young ones. Lovelace was not only about the woman who was denied membership in a tribe, but it was, was also about the fate of her children who would also be denied membership in the tri tribe. And also uh, Landsman, uh, actually, there are three Finnish case, Sami rights cases called Landsman, uh, relate to the uh, um, collective nature of reindeer herding uh, across generations. While this transmission part has been underdeveloped, uh, the Human Rights Committee has been quite strong in developing the notion of culture to comprise, for instance, livelihoods, uh, traditional activities, economic sustainability of the traditional economy, uh, as well as the collective dimension. Also, positive obligations of the states are well uh, developed. Uh, one more external source is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples from 2007, which now is being used by the Human Rights Committee. The Poma Poma was the first case where the notion of free prior informed consent was used by the Human Rights Committee to address whether the consultation was proper. And now in the more recent uh, case of Sanila Aikir versus Finland, which is about membership in the Sami community, the committee explicitly quotes uh, the declaration in, in establishing a right of internal self-determination of a group to decide about its membership. It would be now logical that, that if there is a climate change case, such as Billy, the committee would refer to uh, Articles 13 and 25 of the Declaration, which use the notion of transmittal, transmitting culture, in interpreting Article 27. All this takes me to the conclusion, which is that the right to transmit a culture is an essential core dimension of the right to culture, and both the transmitters and the recipients may demonstrate victim status in respect of actual uh, ongoing harm that constitutes a human rights violation. The 
Human Rights Committee hasn't been alone in addressing indigenous people's rights cases. And I make these brief references to the main cases before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, Avastigni uh, and Yaki Aksa, indigenous community, as well as to the one of the very first cases of the African Court of Human Rights and people, Human and People's Rights, the Ogiek uh, community versus Keria, where we have in substance uh, the question of transmittal of culture as being an important issue in establishing violations also under those regional human rights treaties. I am uh, pulling together the argument. Um, the right to transmission of culture is a right that belongs to both to one or two living generations of today who wish to transmit and to one or two generations of today who wish to be recipients of that cultural transmission, transmittal. And where this right of transmittal is frustrated and rendered meaningless or denied, if we want to use the language of ICCPR Article 27, we are already today in a situation where these individuals in all these generations, three or four, can claim victim status. Culture uh, has been well uh, developed also already by the Human Rights Committee, but uh, one needs to uh, repeat, enjoyment of culture is local, tied to particular natural resources and conditions of a place or area. Culture is wide in scope, including traditional or otherwise typical livelihoods, uh, collective and international in nature. It also includes a living language, which is practiced and, uh, I emphasize, developed through the economic forms of livelihood that are based on sustainable natural resources. Uh, and culture is about way of life, uh, including psychological and physical well-being uh, and the identity of the group, which is essential for its future. So we get through a wide understanding of the intergenerational dimension of culture into an interpretation that actually the right to the future becomes part of the right to culture today, as the transmittal must be secured so that the new generations uh, can become members of a living culture with, uh, if not certainty, at least a high degree of trust that they will be able to lead the way of life that is compatible with their culture. And all this uh, boils down to the conclusion that we can claim victim, victim status today. That's the bottom line in respect of indigenous peoples. But I wanted to say that this line of argument has also heuristic value beyond indigenous peoples. Because once we establish the intergenerational dimension of the right to culture, in the case of indigenous peoples, that their particular way of life, also other people, other communities in particular, even families, can invoke that line of reasoning and claim equal treatment. The Human Rights Committee did it in Hopu and Desert versus France which was an indigenous Polynesian case, but because of the declaration by France under Article 27 was interpreted as a reservation, the committee couldn't deal with it under Article 27, but the 
decided to deal with the indigenous, typically indigenous rights issues under the mainstream provisions of Article 17 and 23, private life and family life. And uh, I suggest also rereading of the important environmental rights case, Lopez Ostra versus Spain, because if you go back to that case, there is an intergenerational dimension. There are several references to the health harm to the daughter of the main claimant, uh, which was a factor at the European Court of Human Rights to, to assess that rights under Article 8 had been violated. It was not only a sole person, sole individual claimant whose rights had been violated, but also the community uh, through her family. That's uh, why the indigenous peoples argument can be expanded to other groups and becomes also a general human rights issue. What I have presented here is not a silver bullet, bullet but we do not have silver bullets in human rights law. Uh, of course, uh, proving that one has an arguable claim of human rights harm is not enough for the establishment of attribution and wrongfulness on the side of the state. What helps a lot under Article 27, perhaps less under European Convention Article 8, is that positive obligations are far-reaching under the right to culture of minorities. So we have a better chance, I would say, through indigenous rights than, than, than general human rights here. Uh, the argument does not help much in respect of non-territorial non states and their possible role in adverse human rights impact. Uh, I take the point, but I don't think it is a main obstacle for pursuing the line of argument first in respect of the territorial states and then depending on the outcomes in litigation also trying to seek specific ways through which one or another uh, external non-territorial state could have um, could be claimed to have caused effect or denied uh, the enjoyment of culture. Another challenge is then formulating a proper human rights remedy. What will the claimant be asking when they pursue the intergenerational nature of the right to culture and perhaps they resort back to the standard uh, climate change related to remedies. Uh, my uh, optimism is not overshadowed by the fact of these reservations uh, because uh, I see that human rights law has its limits and ultimately the function of human rights law or the objective of human rights litigation is to pursue human rights claims. And hence it may not be a silver bullet in relation to stopping climate change. But to say metaphorically, uh, the toolbox of international human rights law is quite rich with fine precision tools, but you shouldn't be using them as a hammer. You, you are misusing the tools and, and you will not get a good result if you try to use precision tools as a hammer. Thank you so much. And I'm very much looking forward to the discussion.